Fayetteville, NLC Fayetteville. So good uh, to be here. Man, I, I don't know if I could really put into words how honored uh, and grateful I am to be here, and it's always a humbling experience to have the opportunity uh, to share with you. And uh, just like many of us myself, I'm a broken, weary individual who has been saved by Christ and feel empowered by His Spirit to share with you today, but I'm extremely humble. And I love coming up here to Fayetteville. Y'all have some incredible cronuts and food. Look, if you haven't had a cronut yet, you haven't experienced the presence of God. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm telling you, them cronuts. Are, my wife said, she, she's not here. This, she said, if you try to come home without some cronuts, don't even come home. That's what she said to me. So I'm coming home with some cronuts, okay? Uh, but, you know, on top of all of that, I get to hang out with my guy, uh, Seth. And I just love this man. And in fact, I'll tell you a story. One of the first times that I met Seth, uh, I was introduced to a hidden talent of his, and uh, he has the, um, the ability to swallow a donut whole without taking a bite. Just literally, as one takes a breath, he can inhale a donut. And I remember the first time I watched him do it, I don't know if I said it out loud, but I definitely said, I said, did we just become best friends? Because I feel like we did. Uh, and so, and then I got to know this guy, he's a husband and a father and a man of God, and I'll tell you, he is the real deal. He's incredible. And I'm so thankful for his friendship. And like me, he married up. See, people in Russellville, they understand that Brooke is the real MVP. And we know Kendra's the real MVP as well in that relationship. Can you give it up for Seth and Kendra really quickly? Love you guys. And I'm excited for this series. And I kind of want to front load what I have to say with you today is that what the Lord has given me to share is really heavy on my heart. And it's heavy because of how important it was, the revelation that God gave to me as I studied it for myself. And so I want to front load today by thanking you for your grace, because I know that my imperfect self is not going to be able to perfectly communicate what God says, but I do believe the Spirit of God is going to encourage, inspire, and refresh you. And as Seth has been talking with you, give you a call to action on this. And I love Matthew. In fact, Matthew and John are right up there at the top as two of my favorite synoptic gospels. And so when I heard about this series about the good news, I was so excited about this because there's so much good news in the book of Matthew. There's so much good news in the gospel. And what I wanted to do is I actually wanted to take a text that some people don't view as good news. In fact, there's this really popular TikTok going around about this particular text that we're going to talk about today where 1.3 million people actually liked it, and it describes this text we're going to talk about as bad news. And so I want you to check out this uh, TikTok really quickly. So I actually think the scariest verse in the entire Bible for me is Matthew 7:21, And Jesus is talking to a crowd of people saying, many who say, Lord, Lord, will not get into heaven. And he looks at them and says, many of you on that day will say, Lord, Lord, I did this, I did this, I did that. And he will look at you and say, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. That sucks. So as you listen to this girl, it kind of walks away thinking it's bad news. That's why I titled my message, That Sucks. No, I'm just kidding. I did not do that. But uh, is this, in this text we're about to read, is it bad news? You know, as I began to study it for myself and read it, these are Jesus' words we're going to be reading here. 
in a moment, and this is Jesus speaking to us. And while it would seem like, according to this girl, that it's scary and hopeless, I want to ask you, I want to ask you a question. When Jesus speaks to us, is that his intent? Is his intent to make us feel fearful and hopeless? Or possibly, could what he has to share with us be good news? You see, fear is an interesting thing because while we're all afraid of different things, the underlying thing is we're all afraid of is the same, and that is the unknown. In fact, you could be in a room, I say like your house in your bedroom, with the light on, you can walk comfortably. But as soon as it's dark, all of a sudden you're incredibly uncomfortable. You're afraid to even take a step, even though you feel like you know the room, you've lived in it, Without that light in complete and total darkness, there's an unknown that comes on you. And as a result of this unknown, it creates this fear, this fear of affliction. So I don't think that Jesus was trying to give us a fear of affliction with this text. In fact, I would ask you really quickly, would it be scarier if what we just read was true, but Jesus never warned us about it? He never made it known to us how important this is. I would tell you it would be scarier if it was, this was true and I didn't know about it until the day I stood before Jesus. I'm thankful that Jesus gave this to me now, that he gave it to us now and warned us because it gives us the ability to change. And so I do not think Jesus was trying to instill a fear of affliction. I think he was trying to create a spirit of conviction within each and every one of us. He was trying to help us and warn us to become what we all want to become, which is true disciples, a fully devoted follower of Christ. And that's what this text is called. It's called true and false disciples. And it can be hard, especially in the world that we live in today, to decipher between what is true and what is false. And here Jesus is making it known to us. So he's not trying to inflict fear. He's attempting to convict faith out of you. And that is good news. That is exciting. So let's break this down. Let's talk about Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Let's read verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now there's it's two words, but these are powerful words, and we'll talk about it here in a moment. Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, the first thing we need to understand that Jesus establishes, this isn't even technically my first point, but this is important, is that he's establishing in this text that he will be the judge of our lives. Almost on a daily basis, we experience a lot of judgment. There's a lot of judges and juries that are around us, not just with our decisions, but what's happening locally and globally and nationally. We face and we hear about a lot of judges. But ultimately, one day, as fully devoted followers of Christ, we have to remember that we will be held accountable to one person only, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And if you really think about this, it shouldn't scare you. It should actually bring peace to your heart and to your mind. Think about this. If you could imagine, if you could choose someone yourself to be the judge of your entire life, every action, 
every decision, every mistake, every success, everything that you made, who better to hold you accountable and to determine whether you get to spend eternity in heaven with the God who Christ, who better than Jesus Christ himself? Who better than the very God who came down as a man, who died on the cross, who unconditionally loved you right where you're at, and who introduced you to this incredible loving grace and mercy that we walk in today? I think what scares us is that one day we believe when we meet Jesus that we won't be met with what we've already experienced, which is the grace and mercy and hope of Jesus Christ. I think as a fully devoted follower of Christ, Jesus isn't going to say, well, you know what? You were trying to stand firm in the gospel, but you said it wrong. Like he's almost going to pick out all our imperfection. But I think Jesus is going to celebrate our progression as fully devoted followers of Christ. I think as we stand before God someday, as long as we love Jesus with all of our hearts, I think it's going to be something exciting, not something frightening. So to think about this for a moment, we should be comforted by the fact of knowing that ultimately the only person we'll stand before someday is Jesus Christ himself, who Paul talks about. Paul was a murderer. And look at how Paul talks about Jesus. In Romans 8, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him, Jesus Christ, who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think about an unconditional love that was there with you in your first breath and will be there with you even beyond your final breaths that's gonna love you through every moment of your life, including death itself. And there's a peace that we can walk with today, understanding that the judge and the jury of not just of our life, but of our world is Jesus Christ himself. In Colossians 3, 15 through 17, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Then says, members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, this text is talking about true and false disciples in Matthew 7. And I don't know about you, but growing up, I had the hardest time taking tests. Were there anybody else that just, it scared the heck out of them to take tests? Wow, people are already putting their hands up. Praise God, they're my people. Yes, it was just, I don't care what, you could have given me a test about the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I love me some Steelers, okay? And I would still be terrified. I just, the idea of taking a test was terrifying to me, okay? So I am here along with myself to set some people free from their fear of test taking. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna present as points some true or false statements because growing up, my favorite test was true or false. You know what I'm saying? Because every time I had a 50% chance of being right, and that's a higher percentage than some of the grades I got, okay? So 50% chance was good for me going in to any question, so true or false. But here's the cool part. I'm not gonna grade you. That's actually between you and Jesus. You're better, like I said, you're already better off with Jesus grading you anyways. And I'm going to make the answers known to you because Jesus actually makes the answers known to us throughout this text as well. So number one, true or false? And you can try to answer this right away or you can wait. It's up to you. True or false? Lip service isn't our purpose. Lip service isn't our purpose. 
Let's see what Jesus says. He says in Matthew verse 7, verse 21, the beginning, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying, could it be possible? Could it, I, I, just, I want you guys to ask yourself this. Could it be possible that we could be saying one thing and doing something else? Is it possible in our lives to be saying one thing and be completely acting in another? My in-laws are incredible people. I've been married to my wife for 10 years, and their names are Harry and Laura. They're wonderful, but they, they do not know Jesus. We're working on that. We got them to go to church for the first time, and we just love them to death. We believe that God is going to bring them to a relationship with Jesus. It's just going to happen. We're believing that. But uh, they live a little bit differently, we'll, we'll say that, than my wife and I. And my daughter, we have a daughter now. They have a grandchild four and a half years old. Well, in her fourth year of life, this is the age of curiosity for her, okay? And so she's asking a lot of questions. And in her own little really cute way, she's calling out a lot of the things that I say and a lot of the things that I do. Uh, and so they came to visit. My in-laws came to visit. We bought a new house in Russellville recently, and they came to visit, and they're hanging out, and they're smokers. And my daughter, this is the first time she's been around somebody who smokes that she's aware of. And so we're outside, and they're smoking uh, their cigarettes. My daughter's playing. <laughs> my daughter's playing. And she just stops, and she walks over, and she's just staring at Papa Harry. Like, that's, uh, just staring at him as he's just smoking. And finally she goes, what is that? And I don't think Grandpa Harry was expecting her to ask that question, but he said, well, kind of thought. He's like, well, these are really bad for you. And you should not do these. These are really bad. And he's like, you know, they can actually even kill you. And I was like, you might not want to say kill to a four-year-old. But okay, listen, I know you're trying here. Uh, and so grandma, grandma's like, Harry, don't say that. And he's like, what? It's true. And then Naomi says, well, then why do you do it? And he's like, hmm. He's like, well, I don't know. I guess I enjoy it. I guess I he said, I guess I enjoy killing myself, but I'm not going to say that. But he just said, I guess I just enjoy. I know that's, that's harsh to say, but it's, it's what he said. I guess I, I just enjoy it. And it was really confusing for Naomi because he said this thing was really bad for him, yet he was continuing to do it because he simply enjoyed it. And I've noticed at times that, like for instance, <laughs> now I'll talk about me for a second. Naomi, at dinner time, I, we tell her to drink water, but I'm drinking a Mountain Dew Zero Sugar. I love me some Mountain Dew Zero Sugar. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm drinking, and she's always like, no, I want daddy's drink. I'm like, no, you need to, to drink water. She's like, but you're drinking. And she's like, no, I want daddy's drink. And I was like, no, no, we call it daddy's drink too, okay? So I'm like, no, no, you drink the water. Listen, do as I say, not as I do. Do we ever find ourselves in moments where we're telling Jesus that, hey, Pay attention to what I say, not what I do. It's like as Christians, I got to remind myself that I recognize Jesus as my Lord and Savior, yet I continue to not change the sin in my life. It's one thing to say something. It's a whole other to actually live it out. And I think Jesus is trying to warn us that salvation is not service of our lips. It's service of our lives that it's about what we are doing with the salvation God has given us, about what we're doing with the grace and hope and mercy that Jesus has bestowed onto us, not about what we're saying. And despite living in a culture where it prioritizes what we say and how we say it, 
Jesus says, no, I prioritize what we're doing and how we live out being a fully devoted follower of Christ. Number two, true or false? I want you to think about this. I'm not answering these on purpose. I'm allowing the Spirit of God to work with you, and you answer these for yourself. True or false? I should take at least some credit for the salvation of my life. I should take at least some credit for the salvation of my life. Jesus says in verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Now, here's what I want you to do. Highlight, under, if you've got a Bible, underline this or just write in your notes, did we not? Did we not? Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I, Jesus, will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Notice it says, did we not? Now, when we say, when we say we, you are including yourself, that you are taking some of the responsibility, that you're taking some of the onus, that there is somehow equality in what is happening or what has happened. And so what is being said here is the signs and wonders and miracles that have happened through Jesus that somehow we should also take a little bit of credit, at least a little bit, for what happened. It's like, you know what, Jesus, it's not just the power, presence, and authority of Jesus Christ. I kind of also played an instrumental role in driving out demons and performing these miracles. It's almost like saying, Jesus, you kind of needed us to do all of this, to make this happen. I want you to think about this for a moment. What if right after labor, my wife, she has, she had our daughter, and the doctor goes up, and it's like, oh, Brooke, I'm so proud you did a great job. And I come, I'm like, oh, thanks, doctor. Woo, I'm telling you, I'm a little sweaty. I'm a little emotional. I was a little worried there for a second, but we did it. <laughs> we did it. I mean, we got this. We did it. I mean, come on, we can do it again, but we did it. I feel pretty good about this. I'm pretty excited. Would that be the moment to where I should try to take credit? Also, wouldn't it be a little disrespectful to my wife by giving myself credit? Wouldn't I be taking away credit from her? Imagine the disciples. Jesus is resurrected, and he shows up to the disciples. And the disciples come to Jesus like, Jesus, we did it. Did we not just save humanity from eternal damnation? Dang, son. <laughs> you know, when you called me out three years ago, I had no idea that I was going to save humanity with you. Think about that trying to take credit in that moment for something Jesus did. I have to constantly remind myself as a fully devoted followers of Christ that if it wasn't for the salvation of Jesus, I wouldn't be standing before you today. But what if, I want you to think about this, what if I showed up on that day and stood before Jesus and said, Jesus, look what we've done. My family, my faith, my house, you know, I got to say, Jesus, I really appreciate all of your help in this. Couldn't have done it without you, bud. Is that how we treat our Lord and Savior? If we call Jesus our Lord, is that how we treat? No, that's how we would treat a friend. And I know we hear a lot of times that Jesus is our friend, but Jesus came to be our Savior. And we have to remember that without Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the wisdom of the word of God that was made true through it, we wouldn't be where we are or who we are without him. 
And I can only speak for myself in this, but before I met Jesus, I was a drug addict and drug dealer with no purpose and no family in my life. It's only through the salvation, the grace and hope and mercy of Jesus Christ that I stand before you today. So how silly would it be if I showed up on that day and said, wow, Jesus, what a ride. Look at what we did. I know you were worried, friend, for a second, but look at what we did. You know, hey, where's my house going to be in heaven? I'm, wor- I'm kind of wondering what size it's going to be, where it's going to be. It's like when we try to give ourselves credit sometimes, it means that we're taking credit away from who Jesus is and what he's done for us. This is why I love, and I don't have this mentality yet, but I love what Paul says in Philippians. He says, but whatever were gained to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. If you think about Paul's life, Paul lost a lot. Yet he cared very little about what he lost because all that mattered to him was what he had gained through Christ. This leads me to my third point. It's true or false. God's will always leads to success. I almost put God's will always leads to more. You know, I grew up, uh, and my dad was a pastor my whole life, and I grew up in a, in a very awesome and a wonderful church. I loved this church, but I grew up in what's called prosperity preaching. And prosperity is what we used to do even in, in children's services. We used to talk about our offering that the Bible says that if we give, it'll be pressed down, shaken together, running over, and then doubled back to us. And I started to believe that if I lived and I was obedient to God, that it always led to success and wealth for my life. It almost made me believe that living in God's will wouldn't cost me anything. In fact, what we used to do is we would take these coins and we would put them on uh, railroad tracks and the trains would run over them and they would get bigger and better. Some of you shaking hands, you did it. So we would give that and that was a representation of God was going to take this and make it bigger and better for us in our life. So growing up, I believed that if I lived in God's will for my life, it was going to always lead to success. That there was never going to come a point where God's will actually cost me something. And it's not until I got older and I got faced with opportunities that I realized that that wasn't true. I was living in Columbus about eight years ago and I was not in church. I was not serving the Lord. Uh, Columbus is like, they have like two million people. The state of Arkansas is a huge city. And my wife and I, we were in our first year of marriage, and she was working for Chase, and I had a job. We were making all kinds of money, three-bedroom house, and on the, on the surface, it looked like we were very successful. It looked like we were healthy and wealthy. But what was really happening behind the scenes was I was deep in a dark place of addiction in my life. We were on the verge of divorce, and I was spiritually empty, completely and wholeheartedly living in my will. And God presented a door to me. And this door was a place that I had never even heard of in my life, Russellville, Arkansas. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, Western Pennsylvania. I couldn't have even at the time told you where Arkansas was. I couldn't have told you what interstate, what highway to, I had no idea where it was, let alone Russellville, Arkansas. No idea where this place was. But God says, if you want your life to be saved, if you want your marriage to be saved, this is where you need to go. And where I went was a tiny little bedroom 
in my parents' condo at the time, married. I went from a three-bedroom house, making a lot of money, to no job, and back in my parents' bedroom. I'm not, not my parents' bedroom, sorry. One of my parents' bedrooms. That was weird. Whoa, sorry. One of them. <laughs> Lord have mercy on our souls. I told you about grace in the beginning. Okay. And so to go to where God's will was sending me, it cost me a lot. Then a few years went by, and, and by the grace and mercy of God, he restored my marriage, began to restore my life and, and who I was. And as I began to study scripture, I got my degree. And, and then all of a sudden, new opportunities came. And you guys don't know this about me. There's a few people who know me. But one thing that matters to Caleb's will is, is flashy and sexy. I love the big cities. Listen, I'm not a hunter. I don't own a pair of cowboy boots. Like, I don't belong in Russellville, Arkansas, people, okay? Like, I just don't. I don't. But that's the best part about this. Uh, I'm a city boy. I love the big city. I love the bright lights. I, I had always dreamed about living in this big city and making all of this. I just, I had dreamed about that in my, my entire life. And so the fact that God had placed me in Russellville, Arkansas was interesting. And so I got more opportunities to leave Russellville. And there were places I could have gone. There were opportunities for ministry even to go elsewhere. And as I began to count the cost, began to realize that God's will was asking me to stay. And so at one point, God asked me to step towards something and it cost me. And now I was in a season to where God was telling me to stay and it cost me something. You see, what, what I found in common was is that oftentimes to live in God's will, it's going to cost you. Think about this. God's will for Jesus cost him his life. What makes you think that God's will for your life won't cost you something as well? We live in a society of convenience, in a society of comfort. But oftentimes God's will calls us to the complete opposite of that. And what I learned from, before, from beforehand is, and this may help you, may encourage you, but whether I live in God's will or I live in my will, both carry a cost. And I'd much rather pay the price of living in God's will than I ever would living in my own. So I don't know where you're at this morning, but there may be a step of faith in front of you that's gonna cost you something. It may take away what you would define as success, as wealth in your life. But don't buy into the lie that it's not from God. Because oftentimes our greatest steps of faith require a great cost of our life. We cannot define, and this is what I had to learn through a lot of maturity and I'm still, God is teaching me this, is I cannot define God's will through the lens of success. Young people in the room, today's the currency of today is influence. The more influence you have, the better off you're gonna be. I got a question for you. Does God care more? I'll just use church for an example, Seth. I'm just gonna use church. Does God care more about a church of 500 than he does a church of 50? So does God actually really care that much about our influence? We pour all of this time, this effort, we pay a price. There is a price to pay for your influence. I think what matters most to God is not our influence. I think what matters most to God is our faithfulness. It's how faithful we are 
in the seasons and moments that we find ourselves in. And we should never sacrifice faithfulness for more influence. But we should always be willing to sacrifice influence for godly faithfulness. So what is God asking you to do that's going to cost you? If we're willing to take a step of faith today in our lives. You know, Seth talked about that this whole Roe versus Wade, this is an opportunity for the church when it comes to adoption, when it comes to foster care. But all of these things could cost us something to do. Maybe the Lord's laid it on your heart for a long time. This, is, this could be a moment for you where God's will is leading you. To maybe for adoption, to maybe to become a foster care, or maybe just to help, to give or serve in that organization that does that. There's a Choices in Russellville. It's a pregnancy clinic that helps. It gives them other options and other abilities to do things beyond abortion. Maybe there, there are plenty of clinics and organizations right here in Fayetteville that you can partner with. There are things here at church that we're doing, that they're doing, that are gonna help you and help the next generation, those kids. You know, God made a move, which is awesome, but now it's up to us. It's gonna cost us for the responsibility to be faithful with it. I believe that's what God wants to do with heads bowed and eyes shut.